Hi, this is Pastor Paul Jay Chandran. Welcome to Life Church Castle Hill podcast. I pray that the Lord will speak to you through the Word of God. We believe that when we open the pages of Scripture, we not only get a message from the Word of God, but we also encounter the God of the Word. May you encounter the God of the Word and may your life be transformed from the inside out. God bless you. Enjoy this message. James has been writing about how to live a certain kind of life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. His concern is not so much how we come to faith in Christ. His concern is once you have come to faith in Christ, how do you live your life? That's why we title this entire series as a certain kind of disciple maker. Because James is addressing the issue in the early church, and it's still relevant today for us, that how do we live our life matters. How our Christian life is evidenced through the way we live, the way we, the way we conduct our affairs matters. Not only before God, but also before men. One of the core things of our life is to glorify God. And we are here to glorify Him, and we are here to edify others. So our life, whatever we do with our life, it has to be for the glory of God and for the good of men. So our life matters. How we live our life matters. In the book of James, James is primarily concerned about our Christian living. He had already addressed this. I think in the, in the first sermon, I already gave you an overview that in the future, when we look towards the future, God is going to create a new heaven, he's going to create a new earth, and in this new creation of heaven and earth, he's going to populate it with his people who are like him, who are restored into his image, into his likeness, who has declared in their earthly lives that Jesus Christ is not only my Savior, but he's also my Lord. And they have lived a life where Christ they follow Christ wholeheartedly until they are mastered by Christ in their life, until they become Christ-like. And in this new creation, God is going to populate with people who have been redeemed from this planet. That's why the Bible says the moment you come to faith in Christ, you are a new creation. Old has been passed and the new has come. That means he takes away your own nature, a sinful nature, tendencies you have about being self-centered, doing your own will, wanting your own way, and God transforms you to have his will, to be like him, to, to want to follow him wholeheartedly, to live a life that pleases him. And that's the new creation that he's building. So I want you to think about it like this. In the book of Genesis, you read that God made the heavens and the earth, that's the first thing he did. And then right towards the end of creation, uh, towards the end of that time of creation in the book of Genesis, he created man and then woman. But now it is in the reverse order. God is now creating a new creation of people, new creation of men and women who trust him, who love him, who depend upon him, who tell him that he is their master in life. He is their king. He is the invisible king that rules and reigns through their life, through their heart. And through these people, one day, as he's reversing this order now, he's creating the people, and then one day he will create the place where they're going to live, new heaven, new earth. I want you to listen to me carefully. 
We always say Christianity is about going to heaven. Christianity is not about going to a place. Christianity is about becoming like someone. It is not about transportation where you, you go from here to another place. It is about transformation. While you are here, your life is radically changed. That's why how we live our lives matter. But what brings this transformation also matters. Is this something that is external? A change that is motivated from external factors? Or is it a change that's genuinely brought from within? Is it an inside-out change? Or is it an outside-in change? So the transformation has to be from the inside out because that's why he gives you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes so that he dwells inside of you and he directs your life. He gives you new desires. He gives you new affections. He works in and through you until the fruit of the Spirit is born in your life. And as a result, you are transformed, slowly changed. You become, as a Christ follower, you become Christ mastered every single day in every aspect of your life until you become Christ-like. And this is the group of people that God is creating this new heaven, new earth for. Watch what the Word of God says. So it matters how we live our life. So here in this passage, James is dealing with, again, how you live your life. You know, in James chapter 1, let me give you an overview. James chapter 1, he deals with two things. One, in the first part, he deals with trials. And in the second part, he deals with true religion. In the first part, he says, in, everyone will go through testing of faith. And in the testing of faith, one thing that is required in a believer is this. That you need to be patient. You need to have endurance. You need to have a steadfastness. That means in the midst of whatever you're going through, acknowledge that God is sovereign. He is leading you through this path. You know, all of us, we want God, but we don't want Him to lead us into painful seasons. We do not want Him to lead us through pain. But the reality is, God will use pain to mold and shape our character. We know it intellectually, but do we know it experientially? When we are going through that painful period, do you still look to God and say, Lord, you have been good in the way you have led me? That's important. So in the, in the first chapter, he deals with be patient in how you are living your life. Whether you are going through a test, whether you're going through a temptation, be patient, endure. Because know this, because that will produce maturity in you. Maturity in you. So what you, how you respond when you're going through a painful season will help you result in growing mature in Christ and becoming Christ-like. The second chapter, then he, towards the end of first chapter, he deals with true religion. What, when he uses the word religion, this is what he means. He says, a real faith, that you really have a faith in God, that you truly believe in Him. You have truly given your life to Him. And then he concludes by saying, if you have true religion, it will reflect on how you control your mouth. Your mouth will be controlled. Your tongue will be controlled. Your conduct, your speech will be under control. Then, he says, your manner of behavior will also be changed. You will have a love for people who are marginalized and poor in the community, weaker in the community. That's good. Then he goes to chapter 2, and he deals with the prejudice. He deals with how people behave in the house of God. He says, if you truly are people of faith, 
If you truly have faith in God, then it will see, it will be manifest, it will be evidence in how you treat people. Whether you treat people who benefit you differently to the people who don't benefit you. There are people who are like you and you like them. And there are people who are not like you and how you treat them. It will be evidenced in your work. All these behavior, all these external evidence of your life matters because they are an indicator of whether there is truly a faith in God in your life. Now he brings to this in chapter 2, and he begins to address. He looks at people's lives in his church, and he thinks, well, I find people with counterfeit faith. They claim to believe in God. They claim to be followers of Christ, but yet their life, there is, there is no evidence in their life. So he wants to make sure as a pastor, he wants to address the issue. He wants to make sure that people do not, do not take it for granted. You know, some myth we have in this world. Christian church have created this myth over the last few decades. We have created, a conjured up an image of a Christian. The Christian is someone who have believed in Jesus because he heard a gospel preacher preach. And then he walks down the aisle to say a sinner's prayer. And then he, uh, once he lifts up his hands and says the sinner's prayer, then he is given a card to fill and he fills that card. And then he goes back to his seat and we tell him, you are now born again. You have entered into the kingdom of God. You are now a child of God. And then the person believes that and goes, sits down, and then there's nothing else happens. The church may celebrate, we have decisions for Christ. How many people made decisions for Christ? Oh, we had hundreds of people come to Christ. We put a, we put a fair, we put an event, we put a crusade, we put a meeting, hundreds came to Christ. So we are thankful that people came, made decisions for Christ. But God never asked us, Christ never said to us, go and ask people to make decisions for Christ. We are satisfied, we are easily pleased, because it looks good. But the reality is, how many people who say, who claim to make decision for Christ have never, have never truly followed Him, have never truly given up their life to Him? You know, we think when you come to God, God gives you salvation. God gives you forgiveness of sin. God gives you, Christ gives you forgiveness of sin. Christ gives you a ticket to heaven. Christ gives you a place in heaven. He creates a mansion for you. You go live there happy ever after. Don't think about anything else. But the truth is, when you come to Christ, forgiveness is not the main thing you get. When you come to Christ, the place in heaven is not the main thing you get. When you come to Christ, you get God. Now, this God has to be someone whom you're passionate about. This God whom you are now preoccupied with. You say, I will rearrange my life. I will live a life differently because I didn't know. Now I have God in my life. This God changes everything. He has control over my money. He has control over my, what I pay attention to, where I spend my time. He reorganizes my entire life. That is what you get when you come to Christ. But how often people sit in the congregations around the world and we are sometimes deceived because we don't pay attention to what we get when we come to Christ. We buy into the myth that it's okay, I just mouth a few words. I must be fine. 
But the Bible says this morning that it's not okay. There must be something more. I want you to listen to me carefully. In, in verses 14 to verses 26, that will be our text for today. James chapter 2, he deals with this one issue. How genuine is your faith? And if your faith is real, if your faith is genuine in God, in Christ, how will it look like? So he deals with it here. Verse 14, as I said, he deals with first the counterfeit faith. Then he will give you an example of a real faith. So let's look at verse 14. He says by this question, pay attention to the questions that Bible asks because it is a rhetorical question. It is a question where the answer is already known, but he is asking you to agree with what he's going to say. What is the question? Let's read it together. Three, two, one. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Look at the questions he's asking. What good is it? If you say you have faith, but you don't have works, what good is it? Can that faith save him? What is the answer for both of this? What does he want from you as listener? He wants you to say, absolutely not. Of course it's not going to save him. Of course it's a, it's a faith where, where, where there's faith, but you claim to have faith, but there's no evidence of it. Of course. So he's saying that. Then he wants to illustrate this by giving you an example, an analogy. So he paints a picture. And I want you to pay attention to this picture because this picture will help you explain why he is going down this path where he is helping you think through your faith. Look at what he says in this verse 15 and 16. Let's read it together. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So here he brings up an illustration. Here he says, you look, you look at a person. Say, for example, you got, uh, you got stranded in the middle of your highway. In M2, your, motor, your car broke down. And then you ask you call one of your cell group members, life group members, and say, hey, I'm stranded in M2, somewhere near Epping. Can you please come, help me? And the person says, no problem. I just live around the road in Carlingford. I'll drive there. And the person drives, and the person comes, and the person looks at you and goes, fantastic. Oh, wow, you're stuck. You know, this is why you should pray more, you know. Or pay attention to some things that are fundamental. Check the oil, check the battery. When was the last time? Oh, okay. But never mind. I'll pray for you. God always answers my prayer. Why don't we pray right now? So we hold hands, we pray. Lord, provide for this person a battery. Provide for this person someone to come and help him start the car. And we thank you. You're a provider. We thank you in Jesus' name. And then you say, bye-bye. I'll see you at the life group next Friday. And then you drive off. <laughs> right? So this, you can say it and sound so good and you drive off. But then you think, okay, this has to be, someone has to come. So you call somebody else from your cell group. And this person comes. And this person drives up and they say, when they come, the first thing they say to you is, wait, 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 you must be so thirsty. It's a pretty hot day today. Here, have some Coke. 
Wow, you thought of me as Coke. Wonderful. I also brought Diet Coke, whichever you want. You know? yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And you're having that. And while you're having that, they say, no, no, you sit down in my car. I'll turn on the aircon. You sit down there. You sit down there. Just relax for a while. And then they call the NRMA. They say, come, come, come. I need help here. And then they say, no problem, no problem. I'll wait, I'll wait. But the car has to be towed to a place. Oh, no problem, no problem. I'll drive you to your, your, your appointment. Where do you need to go? I'll be with you. I'll drive with you. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything else, my wife will take care. I'll, I'm just here, going to be here with you. I'm going to be with you. Now, which one do you think has real love for that person? When you really say, I love people, I love helping people, do you help people when it, it's convenient for you or it, when, even if it inconveniences you, you go out of your way to help people? Which one would be, you can boldly say, he loves people? The reality is, you and I, we know. That's why he brings it out. He says, there are love works. There are works of love. And you can't say, I love people until there is an evidence of works of love in your life. That you truly love people by showing that, yes, I do go out of my way to help people. You know, not beat them down at that time, but rather not give them a lecture. Sometimes people don't need a sermon. They need a sandwich, you know. Sometimes people don't need a lecture. All they need is a lift. Just give them that. At the end of the day, that's what it is. So here he uses this as an analogy, and he brings out the element and to try and hit home a point. Look at this next verse in verse 17. Verse 17 begins by saying, so also. Circle those two words, so also. Why? Because it, is, it means in the like manner, likewise, likewise. Likewise, whenever the Bible uses the word so also, it means it's making a comparison. It's just saying, in the same manner, you would say there is love. Someone talks about love, but someone do acts of love. Which one is more genuine? This guy who does acts, he really loves people. The other one, just mere talk. So here he says, so also, faith by itself is dead if it does not have works. In other words, you can say you have faith, but how do I know you really have faith? It's only when it is evidenced by works in your life. Works in your life. Otherwise, it's a mere rhetoric. It's just talking. It's just talking about faith rather than living out faith. It's just about words, no works. He's making a comparison and he deducts. So the first thing he says is there are people who are in the congregation who have a faith, who claim to have faith in Christ, but their faith is merely talk. No action. That's why we call it, the first one is a rhetoric faith. In other words, you say all the nice things, you say all the Christianese things. You know, if you've been in church long enough, you actually develop a lot of Christianese. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise God. God is so good, isn't he? Oh, God is so good. Even though in deep down you will never believe it, when you're going through a painful season, you don't know. You question, well, how is God good, huh? You know, this morning we asked that question, how has God been faithful in your life? Has God been good to you? You know, people think God is only good to me when good things are happening to me. When God gives me all the good things that I list to him, then God is good. 
But the reality is, even when you lose that job, even if you have been made redundant, even if you have not been able to afford a house in Sydney, even if you cannot send your kids to good schools, even if you have been in a place where you haven't progressed in your life, is God still good? When are we going to stop measuring things based on external factor? God is good, full stop. Irregardless of the circumstance of my life, irregardless of my personal experience, God is good. And because He is good, I'm still alive. I still have breath in my nostrils. The reality is we forget, we diminish God, and we come to a place where we say, God, you're not good. Here the thing is, he's, be- he's beginning to paint a picture. There are a lot of people who have rhetoric faith. Rhetoric faith. Another way of saying this rhetoric faith is what he calls dead faith. Why? Because he gives me the text. The text says this. If faith by itself, verse 17, does not have works, it is dead faith. Dead faith. So what does he mean by dead faith? Dead faith means it's useless. It's not going to benefit your life. You have a form of godliness, but no real godliness, no power, no substance. You have a lot of things to say, but you don't have real experience. It's a rhetoric, but it's not the reality in your life. It's dead. Is it the lack of action that produces death? Or is it the lack of action showcases that you were never alive in the first place? I want you to think about this, church. Lack of action doesn't mean that you, the lack of action has produced death in your life. No, no, no. The lack of action is an evidence that there was no life in the first place. That's why it's a dead faith. Because it, it makes you think that you have it. Because you made lip service, but you haven't changed your lifestyle. You professed faith in Christ, but you have not practiced what Christ says. You claim to know Christ, but Christ doesn't control the way you live your life. He is not mastering your life. He doesn't dictate. He is only an advisor for your life, not the one who has lordship over your life. Very big difference. So you and I, we need to pay attention to this. So he says, this is a dead faith. This is a rhetoric faith. And many times, when we are going through dead faith, many people who are sitting down in pews in churches, their faith is dead. And when their faith is dead, you know how you will see it? You will see it like this. They are lukewarm. They never get excited about serving God. They never get excited about growing in God. They never get excited about giving or serving or, or being beneficial to the kingdom of God. Nothing. They're just, they just going through the motions. They, could, they just go through the motions. They're not, they not intellectually involved. They're not engaged. They're not engaged. Heart, mind, and will are not engaged in the things of God. So this is a dead faith. It's a dead tree. No fruit, absolutely. So you and I, we need to understand this. The second thing that he leads on to say is this. Look at in verse number 18. In verse 18, he deals with someone from the congregation objecting to this kind of preaching. He says, ha, 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 ah, hold on, hold on, James. You just assume that everybody is like this. You know, I have my own way of doing life. I have my own way of uh, uh, spirituality. What you're saying doesn't apply to me. So there's an objection. What's the objection? Let's read verse 18. It says, but someone will say, you have faith 
I have works. You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Let's listen to this. What is the objection? He says, you have faith, I have works. This objector will say, you know, you say that faith and works have to come together. You know? But the reality for me is, I have a lot of works. You know, the culture that I grew up in, I have works in my life. You know, the culture I grew up, personally, the culture I grew up, when I look around, you know, I was born and brought up in a nation that, that has probably advanced a lot of uh, religion, that has done a lot of religious stuff. Our people back home are very spiritual people. Be it whichever, whichever, whichever idol they worship, it, it's immaterial. People are a spiritual people. And the spiritual people in any religion, I want you to pay attention to what I'm going to say next. Any religion of the world teaches this, except Christ, except Christianity. Every religion of the world teaches this. There's only one person who can save you. And that person is the person in the mirror. The more good you do, the more you will be better off. In this life, if you had difficulties, but you do more good, maybe in the next life, you'll get a better life. But if you do more bad in this life, the next time you're born, you could be a lizard on the wall. What was that, Pastor? I don't know what that is. In my country, there's always lizards on the wall. Huh? And you look around, you, you look around and you go, it's like always talking to you. It's always there. Hi. Before you came, I was here. You have your bed, I have my wall. You don't mess with me, I don't mess with you, we are fine. But you go near it, it will just sometimes just jump on you. Have you ever experienced that? Oh my goodness. It just jump. Sometimes it won't jump. It will just leave behind its tail. It will just drop off its tail. You're like, what? What happened? What? This is a ninja mutant, you know? What is it doing? The reality is, people will care. Look at that. If you, don't, if you don't do more good, you will end up like that. That could be your great-grandfather. Be careful. <laughs> the reality is, that's the mindset. So I need to do more good. So who do I, who do, who saves me? Me. If I'm the one who's going to save me, then I put a lot of pressure on myself. No wonder I beat myself. I walk on the street for a long mile with no slippers, nothing to protect my feet. Why? Because I'm paying, I'm atoning for my own works. I go on pilgrimage to certain holy sites. I dip myself in certain holy places, in rivers, where it will cleanse me, make me something new. The reality is, you, then you pay donations, you do things. Why? Because I'm doing all these good works so that my works will one day be measured up before God and I will probably be saved. James says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. Because no amount of good works you do will ever amount for your sin, will never atone for your sin. There is only one who died for your sin. Let go of your pride. Let go of your own self-effort. Come to him and believe in him and say, Jesus, you died for my sin. You paid the price for my sin by your blood. Your blood washes me clean. Your blood declares I'm righteous. I come to you. I trust in you. 
So the one who is saying, I, I can get right with God by my works, James says, nah. But the other one is the other extreme. He says, I don't trust in my works. I have faith. I don't need any works. It's all about my belief. I believe God forgives me. I believe God loves me. My relationship with God is direct. I don't need a church. I don't need anybody to teach me. I don't need to go anywhere. I'm a good person, pretty good. You know, I've given my faith to God knows how much, how much I believe Him. But there's no evidence of life change in your life. But you say, I believe. Because faith alone is enough for me. But the key is this. James knows that these two people exist in the congregation. Your works will not save you. Your faith, claiming to have faith with no evidence of life change, may not save you. And he brings it about like this. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Look at what he says in the next one. He says in verse 19, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James knows how to really stir up the plot. He says, listen to me carefully. You say you claim you faith, you got faith. Yeah, I know. God, God and me, we are like this, you know, pastor. God and me like this. He understands. But there's no evidence in your life. Oh, no, no, he understands. He knows me. He understands. Sometimes we use the Bible to, 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 to share to, to, to share about why we don't have fruit in our life. We use the Bible, we quote the Bible incorrectly just to give evidence that, well, it's okay. You know, one pastor looked at one church member. The pastor has the habit of shaking people's hands as they leave, and he said to them, I haven't seen you for almost a few months. We need you in the army of the Lord. And the member just looked at him, yes, yes, I've been away. Pastor, by the way, I belong to the army, but I haven't seen you in church. Yeah, yeah, I belong to the secret service. <laughs> Specific group of people who have been called and released. Don't come, don't do anything. Just, you know, you know you have faith. God knows you have faith. You, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the last days, everything will be fine. No. Can I humbly say? James is bringing this thing, and he says, no, even the demons believe. Even the demons believe. I want you to pay attention to this because this is the second counterfeit faith that many people have, even in the body of Christ. What is that faith, Pastor? The first one is the rhetoric faith, where they keep saying that they have faith, but it's a dead faith. The second one is a religious type of faith, religious faith, religiosity. And it's more of a demonic faith or a deceptive faith. Listen to me very carefully, deceptive. Why? Because the Bible says the devil also has belief. Devil also believes. That means this is all theoretical. I know the Bible. You know, many times in my travel, people will come to me and say, you know, I studied in a Methodist mission school. I, in fact, for my, for, my, uh, for my exam when I was in high school, I studied the book of Acts. I know more of the book of Acts than most pastors. You know, I studied this. I was in a Methodist mission school. I was in this. I was in that environment. You know, I know a lot. Can I humbly say, it doesn't matter even if you have PhD, permanent head damage, as a result of studying scripture. It doesn't matter what you have. I have so many degrees behind my name. It matters nothing. Why? Because as long as it's just theory in your head and it has not affected the way you live your life, it hasn't changed and transformed your heart, 
how you make decisions, how you live life, how you budget, it doesn't change any of your things, then it's purely demonic faith. It's just a deceptive faith. It is just a faith of religion where I do certain things. Can I humbly say, when, when James writes this, he understands what people will be going through. What people will be going through is, wow, look at me. All my life I've been in church. You know, I was born and brought up in a, in a family that served God from, for four generations. They were once upon a time pagans, and they came four generations ago to believe in Christ as their Savior and Lord. And they have been serving God for four generations. So I come in that environment. From day one, I've been in church. But I have seen in my own personal life, I can claim to have faith in God because of what my parents taught me, the environment I'm in, surrounded by uncles and aunties who are all pastors and ministers of God. You create that environment. You go in that bubble. You believe what they believe. You come to a place where you say, this is it. But the thing is, has it really bought to a place where it transacts in your heart and changes your life, where your orientation is completely changed. You come to a place where you say, God, you are my security. You are my sufficiency. You are my satisfaction. Or your heart is so divided with so many things. I need God. I need Christ. But at the same time, I need all this. Otherwise, my life is incomplete. The religiosity... We can, we can look at our heritage and say, no, I come from a Christian family. I have a Christian name. Doesn't make you. you. You might have served in church all your life and still wake up in hell. Why? Because it doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't say if you do more works in the church, you will be in heaven. No, only if you have given your life to Christ. And Christ has atoned for your sin and you Come to a place where you say, God, I give because Christ gave himself completely for me. My life is no longer mine. I live a borrowed life. My life is his. My life is his. Imagine this, church. Devil comes into church. Don't get worried. Not at the moment. Imagine for, with me. Devil comes to church. You sit down with the devil and you say, devil, do you believe there is one God? Devil says, yes, I believe there's one God. Do you believe that God sent his son, Jesus, to the world? Yes, I believe. That's what I've been saying. People told me to shut up. That's what I've been saying all this time. Do you believe that Jesus died for the sin of the world? Yes, I believe. Jesus is the son of God who died. He's the, perf he's the perfect sacrifice. He's the Messiah. Wonderful. The reality is, woo, what was that? The person comes, and then you sit down with the devil, and then he says, devil, You've been such a valuable contributor to the church. Can I ask you just one question? What is that, Pastor? Would you make Jesus the Lord of your life? <laughs> I knew this was coming. I knew this was coming. When you call me to have coffee, I knew this was coming. The trouble is here. The reality is, no. Why not? Oh, I hate him. Why do you hate Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. You know he's the son of God. Yes. You know he died for the whole world's sin. Yes. But why do you hate him? Oh, I hate him. I absolutely do not like him. Because he asks for everything. I can't give everything. I want my way. In fact, I could control one third of heaven. 
all the angels, the demonic angels, I could bring them with me. I, I want the whole world. I want people to follow me, not him. I want people to appreciate me, not him. I want people to bow down to me, not him. Why would I go and give my life to Christ? I acknowledge he's a good man. I acknowledge he's God. I acknowledge he's all these things, but he cannot have my life. What is that? It is not repentant. It is rebellious. A rebellious heart is what the devil has. So it's not about how much I know. It is how much my heart is willing to yield and come before God and say, God, I'm a desperate man. I need you. How many of us are willing to come to that place where we come before God and say, God, it's not just mere rhetoric. I want you to be the Lord of my life. But truly, here's my heart. Here's my life. Take my heart. Take my life. Rather than this, you know how we design church meetings? We design church meetings around how much we can get from God. We say, come, seek God. He will give you more. Today you drive Toyota, tomorrow you will drive Lexus. Today you are in a, in a job as a manager, tomorrow you become the CFO or the CEO. Today you are in a two-bedroom apartment, tomorrow he will give you a six-bedroom house. Why? Because you come. God will bless you. He will increase you. So I come to serve the God I want, not the God who he is. That is deceptive faith. That's demonic faith. That's the one that believes here, but doesn't change here. And you want to know the truth? The truth is, we know it exists. We know it exists in the pulpit. We know it exists in the congregation, but nobody wants to do anything. Why? Because there are budgets to be paid. There are buildings to be built. There are things to be done. How can you offend people? I would rather offend you today than one day stand before God and give an account and say, what were you doing? I was just trying to please everybody, Pastor. I was just trying to please everybody, Lord. I want you to hear with me very carefully. Word of God is very clear. Don't walk in deceptive faith. Wake up today. You know, a lot of us, we are so proud of our achievements. And we come before God and say, no, God enabled me to buy that house. God enabled me to get a promotion. God enabled me to do this. You know, the greatest blessings in life are not these things because one day you're going to leave behind every one of them. These are not your blessing. The blessing is that you have God as your gift until you come to realize my portion in life, my blessing in life is not the material, but Him. He is my satisfaction. He is my sufficiency. He is my great desire. He is the one. If you have God and you have nothing else, you'll be fine. But if you have everything else and you don't have Him, it won't be fine. A day will come when you will realize and it'll be too late. This, the time is now to come before Him. Deceptive faith. Even demons believe, and they shudder, but they will never repent. Verse 20. Verse 20, he brings it down to this. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Circle that word, foolish person. Even Jesus, when he wants to address this issue, in Matthew chapter 7, he uses the illustration of a wise man and a foolish man. He brings out the foolishness of human heart. I want you to understand the big difference between a fool and a real stupid. A stupid is somebody who is dumb, don't have that much intellect, 
don't have that much IQ, can't really, really doesn't know a lot of stuff. But here he's not saying you're stupid. He's saying you're foolish because with your intellect, you do not know how to rightly choose. That's the biggest difference. Fool. So here he addresses one of those things. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? How often do you just give an excuse of, I have faith, and that's it, that's all matters. My faith before God is very private. Don't give an excuse. Don't be wallowing up in your... So look at pastor, look at this pastor. You know, if God is pleased with me, look at the way I'm, I'm promoted in my job, my, all those things. People use all these external things to validate themselves and say, God is pleased with me. You know, a man went around saying to everybody, I've been made the VP in my company. I'm the vice president. I'm the VP in my company. I'm the VP in my company. Until his wife got sick of it. One day in bed, you know, pillow talk. In the pillow time, she just said to him, hey, stop telling everybody that you are the VP. Nowadays, they, they give VP to anybody. Even you go to a supermarket down the road, Coles, they have a VP for prawns. What? This man's ego was really shattered. He's like, what? E VP for prawns? So he called the local calls the next day. Can I speak to your VP for prawns? The other person on the side just waited for a second and said, fresh or frozen? <laughs> Which one? We take so much pride in these things. And in this pride doesn't do much. So what he's saying is, don't be so foolish. Don't be caught up in how you are in the external. You foolish person, apart from works. Why are they all coming up? They're scaring me. <laughs> that faith apart from works is useless. The reality is this. Don't be deceived. He says, don't be foolish. Faith apart from works is dead. Now, right now, you and I, we need to define this. What is faith here? And what is works he's talking about? Because many people get confused because the works that Paul addresses, you're not saved by your works, you're saved by faith alone. Even though Paul doesn't use the word faith alone, only James does. But faith, not works, Paul says. James says, faith alone mm -hmm, has to be evidenced by works. What's the difference? I still got time. I'm still going. You okay, Le? Okay, fantastic. Give me five more minutes before you. <laughs> Lord, help me. <laughs> Where was I? Faith without works. What's the faith Paul is talking about? Paul talks about faith alone in Christ as your Messiah. He is my savior. He died for me. His blood cleanses me. I do not have to do anything to purchase my salvation. I do not add to Christ's work. That's what Paul says. Faith alone, without any works of my own, God saves me. So faith there is about my belief in Christ to receive Him as my Lord, to receive Him, to enter into the life that He has for me. I enter into His life. You know, the biblical thing that many people confuse is, we always say to people, receive Jesus into your heart. Big Jesus, small heart. 
receive him into your heart. He comes. Even though it is yes, it's also no. Salvation is not about receiving Jesus into your heart. Salvation is about entering into his life. What he has provided, you enter into his life. That means you are saying, Lord, I have been dead to sin. Now I'm alive to Christ. I've been dead to my own ways. And now I want Christ to dictate the terms upon which I live my life. He is the life for me. And in his life, there's abundant life. There's eternal life. I enter into his life. Not him coming into my life. And then I slowly give one area. I decide who gets what. I decide when my wife will get my time, when Jesus will get my time. I decide when my kids will dictate my time, I get, uh, when my career will dictate my time. No. Where did we go into the smith? It's all about us at the control center. The control center is with Christ. We come to him. I'm dead. I'm alive. I was blind. Now I see. I was dead. Now I'm alive. I need you to dictate my life. Take control of my life, my heart, my everything. You come. And you give everything. Now that is faith. Now when you have that faith, you don't need to add any works to get saved. You are saved. But how do I know you are saved? How does Bible say you are saved? You are not saved by works, but you are saved for works. You are saved for works. In other words, how do I know that you truly have faith in God? It is when you give your heart to Him, when you give your life to Him, and when you are dictated by His terms, you live life based on how He wants you to live life. That works. That works. How do we define that works? It's not the works of the law, but it's the works of faith. And this works of faith is obedience to the Word of God. Write this down. It's gold. It's what you call tweetable quote. Huh? What is this works? It's works is obedience to the word of God. Lord, I obey. I'm not just a hearer of the word, but I'm a doer of the word. I'm not someone who professes faith in Christ, but I'm someone who practices the truth that Christ speaks of. I have a changed life. And it's active. It's not passive. It's active where I obey him continually every single day. I acknowledge that he is my Lord. Not just my financial advisor, but he's my financial Lord. I do what he asks. So that's important. So when we come to this, what does he say? Don't be foolish person. And he says, faith apart from works is useless. Jesus used that exact word, don't be foolish. And you know who he said was foolish? Matthew chapter 7, wise man, foolish man, both built a house. Both built a house. One was upon the rock and upon the sand. The wise man and the foolish man, their house looked the same from the ground level up. Nothing wrong from ground level up, but from ground level down, there was fundamentally something different. One listened to the word of God and obeyed it. The other one listened to the word of God and said, that was a good sermon. I'm going to buy the CD, pass it to my family, but never practiced it. Are you listening? It is about practicing the faith. That's the key. That's the big difference. So here he brings two examples from verse 21 to verse 26. Let me go through this and give you uh, and two people he uses, Abraham and Rahab. Let's read Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Circle those two words. Faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. He wasn't saved because of his works, but the faith that he had led him to do works. And then he goes on to say, in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We already decided what that is. He's not talking about works of law. He's talking about works of faith. And he says faith comes first, and then you, it leads you to do works. Obey Christ. Obey God. Wonderful. In verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What does he mean by this, Pastor? He gives two examples. He says, don't be foolish. Isn't faith and works important? Faith has to be evidenced by works. And then he brings two examples. One from the Old Testament, the other one from the Old Testament. Are you listening? Okay, you're paying attention. Both are from the Old Testament. One from the lineage from the Jewish community and the other one from the Gentile community. One was from a man gender. The other one was a female gender. One was a notable figure. Everybody appreciates Abraham. Everybody says he's the father of our faith. Rahab, nobody wants to associate with. Why? She's a prostitute. Someone, someone who the society was rejecting. Fantastic. <laughs> both are important. He brings both the examples. Both the examples. And while he brings both the examples, listen to what he's going to say. He says, don't you believe Abraham had faith? How do we know he had faith? One day, God asked him, Abraham, follow me. Leave your father's house, your countrymen, everybody. Come, follow me. Abraham says, I'll follow you, God. And God says, I'll give you a son one day. And this son will be your treasure because through him, I'm going to bring the Messiah into the world. Oh, wonderful. Who are you going to give it to? Your old wife, Sarah. But Sarah has gone past the age of childbearing. Yeah, I'll do a miracle. I'll open up her womb and I'll give her a child. Supernatural. Okay. And then the time came when she delivered a baby. Was so happy because God did the impossible. With man, God did the impossible. Then this child grew up loved by everybody. His name is Laughter, Isaac. A day came, God says, you love your son so much, right? Yes, I do, Lord. Tomorrow morning, bring him to the mountain. I'm going to show you. There, I want you to lay him down, tie him up, and put the sword right through his body and sacrifice him. Abraham says, good. When do you want it? Tomorrow morning. Okay. Tomorrow morning, he brings the man, young man now. He carries the wood. He brings him to the mountaintop. That young child innocently asks, Daddy, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? He says, God will provide. Come. And when he comes up, he ties him up. And he lifts his sword and he's about to kill him. Right at that moment, a father willing to sacrifice his son because God asked him to. Heaven intervenes. Jesus Christ comes. He says, stop. Why? Because this blood spilled is not going to save anybody. But a day will come and the father will give his only son and he will die and he will save many. So you stop. But instead of killing Isaac, kill the lamb I'm providing you. So he brings the lamb, substitutes the lamb, kills it. And then God says to him, 
Now I know, Abraham. Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you really love me. Wow. What was God saying? God was saying, if you truly believe in me, if you say I have faith in Christ, then can Christ make demands upon your life? And if Christ can make demands upon your life, are you willing to give everything, including your beloved son? Why was Abraham honored as a man of faith? Because you know why? Because he realized my life is nothing. My life belongs to God anyway. And God is my satisfaction, not having a son, but God. My security is not in a son, but in God. My sufficiency is not in having a child, but in God. And if God wants this, I will give him. And even if I kill him, God will raise him up. That's the faith he had. That's the faith evidenced by his works. Rahab, on the other hand, she heard about the God of Israel that helped people cross the Red Sea. He, she heard about the God of Israel that helped them cross the River Jordan. Wow, this God is amazing. And this God is going to give them the land of Jericho. She already placed her faith in this God. So when the spies were coming to spy out the land of Jericho, two of them ran to her house. We need help. We need to hide. She said, come, come, come. I know where to hide you. She took the risk upon herself, hid them. And when the soldiers came and asked, we saw the man here. Where was he? Where were the two guys? No, no, no. They're gone. Gone that way. And then they, she hid them. She released them. She told them, I know the God has, your God has given you the land. But when you come here, when you come here, prepare. Help me. I want to come. I want to be part of your family. What she did was, she didn't just say, I have faith in God. She said, I have faith faith evidenced by my works so what was james saying james was saying guys listen to me carefully don't do be deceived don't be deceived don't just say i have faith god understands my heart no he doesn't he wants you to know this morning that's why the word of god comes very boldly this morning listen to me very carefully he doesn't want you to have a deceptive faith or a demonic faith he doesn't want you to have a religious type of faith but he wants you to come and give your heart to him. Some Christians that are sitting here, your life is dead. You're like a dead tree. There are still some green leaves. There's still some, there's some, still some remnants of the fruit that once upon a time you burn for God that's there. But right now you're dead. But you can't tell. People can't tell because you have that, that kind of look and, and maturity and, and that language. Oh yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to do these things. I used to go on missions. Yeah, I used to do. You used to. Take care whether, whether you're alive today. Don't be dead. Dead is useless. So he says, pay attention. And for those people who have never placed their faith in Christ... You have been coming to church. You've been listening to the word of God. But you have never come to that place where you say, I give my heart, I give my life to Christ. Don't delay it. Don't delay it. This, this week I was in, a, in the hospital visiting somebody. I realized how fragile life is looking around. How fragile. One moment you're here, one moment you're not. Don't leave this decision to the last minute. Make it while you can and come before God and you go and you say, Lord, help me. And for those people who are already walking out in your faith and living out your faith, let, let this word bless your heart that you have a dynamic faith. You have a real faith in God 
evidenced by your works. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you have everything all together worked out. But you're working towards it. You're surrendering everything. That's why in this church, we believe that we want to be surrendered people. We want to be crucified Christians. We do not want to be cultural people. We do not want to be carnal, living in sin. We do not want to live a life of compromise, but we want to live a life of crucified every single day. Crucify the self, crucify the world. Come before God and give Him the Lordship of your life and let Him rule and reign in your life. And let the people around you taste the fruit of that repentance, fruit of that life. That's why we have an opportunity for you to serve. Don't serve because this will help you to get to heaven. It won't. Don't serve because it's the Christian thing to do. Don't. But serve because you have been given a stewardship. You have been given time. You've been given talents. You've been given treasures. You've been given territories, including your fourth territory. You've been given stuff. What is this for? To steward it for His glory. My life is His. Let me steward it for your glory. And when I steward it for the glory of God, it is for the good of people. So every head bow, every eye closed all across this place. I thank you, Jesus. While the elements are being passed around, I want to just read a passage of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. While the elements are being passed around. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. It is the grace of God that you and I we are saved. Through faith. Grace means you undeserved. Your work cannot bring you to heaven. And your work will not keep you out of heaven. Because it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And then the Bible says, and this is not your own doing. What is not your own doing? This saving faith, faith that comes to save you, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. God gives you as a gift to believe in Christ. It is His work. Next slide. Not a result of works. What is the works he's talking about? Not a result of my law keeping, my morality. Not, not because of what I do right that he saved me. I have nothing right, but he saves me because of his grace by faith that he gives me. And then the Bible says, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We, meaning you as believers, us as church, we are His workmanship. That means He is working in us. He worked on the cross for my salvation. Now He comes, He brings me into His life and He's working in us. He's working in us. What is He working on? He's creating us in Christ Jesus. He's creating us in Christ Jesus. We are becoming the new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He's putting new desires, new affection for God. Where God becomes our satisfaction, our sufficiency, and God is our security. God is everything. He's creating us so that we can follow Him. We can be mastered by Him and we can be like Him. And He's creating us for 
good works. Never underestimate that. For good works. There are work of faith that He has called you to. There are people who need to hear the gospel through you. There are children that need to be taught by you. There are youth that needs to be modeled by you. They need a model. They need a father figure to walk with them. It's you. There are people under the sound of my voice that need to benefit from the gift that God has placed in your hand because He has created you for that unique gift which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are churches to be planted. There are pastors that need to be encouraged. That's why we do IDMC conference. There are things that we need to be helping in the community. But within this community of faith, there are so much that we can help to increase people's affection for Christ and deepen their life. It takes all of us. You have been created for good works. Don't forget that. Thank you for listening to our message. We pray that God's word spoke to your heart and gave you an inspiration and encouragement. If you are truly blessed by this, would you take a moment to leave a comment or give us a rating on the Apple podcast service? Not only that, take an opportunity to share this on social media platforms so others who are in similar situations may be encouraged with the word of God. We love you. If you want to connect with our church, go to connect.idmc.com.au and share with us where you're from, what you're doing, so that we can keep you in our prayers before the Lord. God bless you. 